Good morning. That was better. That was definitely better. We're in Lesson 16 in our study of the book of Hebrews, and we're focusing on Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, but we must look, of course, at those texts in Genesis 24 and Psalm 110. In my introduction, I have Airbus over India. This was the newest plane I have ever, probably ever ridden in, and it certainly was the newest plane I had ever ridden in in India. And uh, so when the alarm went off, as it did, and people began to scurry around uh, amongst the crew looking for how to turn it off, I giggled for the whole time. It was one of the funniest scenes I had ever seen. It never occurred to me that it was anything other than that until I talked to my friend who was sitting next to me on the plane back in the U.S. And he, uh, he said that uh, he spoke of this near-death experience. And I said to him, what in the world was that? And he describes this incident on the airplane. And, and, and here, it was, here I was laughing at the comedy, I thought, of people who simply didn't know how to operate a plane and he thought he was saying his last words, <laughs> goodbyes, <laughs> thinking it was the end. And my point in all of this is sometimes an event can have more meaning than you recognize initially. <laughs> and I guess that speaks to me. By the way, I couldn't help but think about this. I had written this before. I looked at the Internet this morning. But you and I have been hearing reports about a great deal of persecution taking place against believers in India. It even hit the Internet this morning. I noticed that they had a picture of a devastated church, and, and now even the press is picking up on the, on the persecution of the believers in India. We really need to remember them. Uh, we have friends there, so let's be sure to pray for the persecuted believers in India. But who could have ever thought that this text, in Genesis chapter 24, these these very few verses that describe the encounter between Melchizedek and Abraham, and then really one verse in Psalm 110, verse 4. Who would have ever thought that you would have the author of a New Testament epistle building a case upon those seemingly obscure texts? There obviously was much more there than met the eye, and that was overlooked for a good while. This is really the second time that our author has built a case on events that take place in the Pentateuch, in, that is, in the first five books of the, of the Law of Moses. And not only does he build a case on what happens in the Pentateuch, but he does it through the lens of the psalmist who interprets those events for his own day and, and thereby the writer to the Hebrews piggybacks and, and picks up those same themes and lessons and applies those to the people of the first century. And by inference, we can say they also extend to us. But the first instance in which the author has done that is in chapters 3 and 4, where he went back to the experiences of the Israelites, the first generation of Israelites in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt and their failure to enter into the rest in, in the land. He picks up on the theme that is carried out in Psalm 95, 7 through 11, where the author of the Psalms is, is pointing out the dangers and, and as it were, the, the sand traps of life that, uh, that could uh, cause a believer to stumble 
and then he applies that to us to show us uh, the needs that we have to depend upon God to enter into rest. And our need for the great high priest, who he introduces at the end of that section. And, uh, and then we have the second encounter, which we uh, come across in our text, that has to do with Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek, as we read in uh, Genesis chapter 14. Chapters 5 through 7 of Hebrews have really been uh, preparing us, they've been introducing us to the theme of Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek is not new to us in our text in chapter 7 because the high priesthood of our Lord has been described as a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And I want to point out, I don't really have time this morning to do it, but as I've thought about our text in in chapter 7, a lot of themes that have been introduced earlier in the book of Hebrews kind of converge, if, if you would, here in, in these critical chapters in the central core of the message of Hebrews. Uh, themes like the deity of the Son, the humanity of the Son, which of course would be chapter 2 uh, primarily, the, the Son's eternality, that He always exists, uh, the Son's kingship, and now the son's priesthood. All of those themes have already been introduced, but they sort of converge when it comes, uh, when we come to our text here. I think he's been paving the way for us to see the convergence of these themes in Christ. And so our text focuses on the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest in meeting the deficiencies that we have as we saw them in chapters 3 and 4 in particular. And Genesis, four, I say Genesis 24, pardon me, I wasn't even thinking right, let alone typing right, that's still up on the screen. Genesis 14 is interpreted in the light of Psalm 110 and is then applied to the reader. Now, what I'm going to do in, in this message is to focus on these texts, Genesis chapter 14, then look at Psalm 110, and then pick up in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and how the writer to the Hebrews begins to use this theme of Melchizedek as he meets with Abraham, and then talk about some applications that will, uh, I think, relate to us. Well, let's look at the, at the context of our text. And again, I'm really trying to keep foremost in your mind the way in which the argument of Hebrews flows. Chapters 1 and 2 talk about the sufficiency of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over, it speaks of him in terms of his deity, of his power uh, and his control, that he is greater than the angels, that he for a time became lower than the angels in chapter 2, and by means of his incarnation has now identified with men and has been qualified for the sacrifice that he made at the cross of Calvary. The deficiency of man in chapters 3 and 4 as taught to us by the failures of Israel in the wilderness. God's provision of a great high priest for us beginning at the end of chapter 4 and going through chapter 5 verse 10 and then there is a pause and the pause is necessitated by the dullness of the reader, the sluggishness of the reader and so they have, he has a digression in 5.11 through 6.20 in which that great warning text appears, but that is a parenthesis, as it were, 
And now he has returned to the subject again of Christ as our great high priest in chapter 7. In many ways, that theme flows all the way through chapter 10. Uh, and you'll see uh, applications as you get to 10, 19 through 25. Because we have a great high priest and he has made the sacrifice and so on, the superiority of Christ uh, plays out. So this is really the core of the message of the book of Hebrews as, as I understand it. Now let's talk about Genesis chapter 24, for uh, chapter 14. I don't know why I get that mixed up in my mind. Genesis chapter 14, this incident with Abraham and Melchizedek. You remember in chapter 12, especially in verses 1 through 3, we come to the first uh, utterance of the, Gen the Abrahamic covenant where God promises that he will give Abraham a great people, uh, a great land and a great blessing. Uh, and then immediately thereafter, Abraham departs for Egypt, uh, lies about his, the identity of his wife and gets, uh, as it were, escorted to the border and sent uh, back home. In chapter 13, we have the incident where he and Lot will separate. Remember, the, 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 the flocks and such are, are multiplying to the degree that they just can't keep both of them in the same area. And so Abraham gives Lot his choice. And uh, Abraham, like uh, most of us, like my children when they were growing up and like me when I was growing up, <laughs> when you have uh, five pieces of pie there, believe me, my daughters could have worked for the Bureau of Standards. They could see the biggest piece and, and that's the one you went for. Well, Lot seems to have done the same. But he made the mistake while he found the place that appeared to have more promise. That is the place, of course, where Sodom was. And it is the place where he finds trouble, not blessing. It's interesting, though, at the end of chapter 13, if you look at verses 14 through 18, it would be easy for Abram to think to himself at this moment in time, I gave Lot the best choice of land. What is that going to mean for me and my descendants? And you'll notice that God says to Abraham, look out, <clears throat> look at all this land. This is all going to be yours. Uh, so he reaffirms this covenant here, specifically in the context of the land that he will receive. And then we come to our situation in Genesis chapter uh, 14, which I call losing, <coughs> losing a lot, <coughs> or I might say losing a lot. Um, which probably could be challenged. It is interesting that when we were in chapter 13, Lot seems to be living in his tents uh, and, and sort of nearby the city of Sodom. When you get to chapter 14, you get the sense that Lot is, is, the, is actually there in the city. That may not be true, but it just seems like he's getting closer and closer. And, and when you look later on, uh, when the angels arrive, it looks like Lot has pretty well settled uh, in the place that is doomed for destruction. Now, what we need to understand is, is, is this whole scenario that's taking place where it, it seems initially to be just the typical run-of-the-mill uh, power struggle between uh, political powers. Now, these are not the superpowers. We're not talking about Assyria or Babylon or Egypt, we're talking about these little kind of uh, city-states that were in the immediate vicinity of uh, 
of, of, of Israel's immediate vicinity. But the, 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 the unique part is that when you think in terms of the map, you have to realize that, that the, the, for instance, Assyria and the Babylonians, when they would come down into Africa, they would come down through this rather restrictive route, the way of the kings. That was the, that was the way in which they would have their trade routes and whatever. And so whoever controlled the, these little uh, territories really was at the, were the gatekeepers for for commerce and, and whatever. And so even though uh, these kings were on the east and would seem to be unaffected, they really had to have control, or so they thought, of this, of this passageway down into uh, Egypt. What happens is that Keterleomer and his three friends, three uh, king friends from the east, uh, had subjugated this area, and, and somehow there came about a rebellion of various kings, and they said, we've paid tribute long enough, we've, we've let them rule long enough, we're breaking off. And, and so uh, Keterleomer and his, and his uh, colleagues say to themselves, we've got to go, march on this place, retake it, recapture it, bring these folks under submission, and so we can have control of the trade routes. And so you have this, this coalition of five kings uh, circling kind of around the king of Sodom, uh, the, the Sodom area, and, and these guys from the south are, are a band of resistance. Now, it looks to me from the text like there are, another, uh, there are a number of other countries, and it's almost like these kings from the east are taking the trade route, and they're actually picking off one by one the rebel kingdoms and, and winning the victory and working their way finally to the last holdout, which would be the king of Sodom and his colleagues. And in doing that, several things happen. They're gaining strength, and they're demonstrating their strength and their power. My sense is that these four kings are really powerful dudes. And the more victories they pile up, the more amazing Abram's victory is going to be. I mean, you're looking at, what, 318 guys? Uh, I know that Mamre and his buddies have some. Boy, that's a pretty small army, is it not? And these guys came determined to win. So the more victories they pile up as they're, as they're on their way down, it's like now they've come to the last holdout, these five kings, and, and these five kings just crumble. Isn't that the sense you get as you read the text? They're falling into the tar pits. They're running off into the mountains. Doesn't sound like much of a fight to me. And Abram is going to take these characters on. Now, that to me is, is very, very interesting. So the five kings uh, are defeated and Lot is hauled off. I wonder what Lot was thinking about that time of his decision to, to, uh, to take the better land to live close to Sodom. Uh, somehow he may have had uh, second thoughts and he probably should have. By the way, lest I be too hard on Lot, he is called that righteous Lot. And it may well have been this may have been God's stick, so to speak, a chastening rod that may have been a little wake-up call for our friend Lot as to uh, his decisions. Although he didn't really learn quickly because he ends up being back in Sodom again and has to be uh, physically removed. So the five kings are defeated, Lot's taken, and then Ad Abraham pursues with his colleagues. Notice that there is this alliance 
with Mamre. Remember the oaks of Mamre and, and, the, and the territory that he had to buy in order to bury his wife uh, and so on, a burial ground there. And it would seem that, that uh, Abraham has no alliance with Sodom or w- with the king of Sodom or these other characters. So in one sense, Abraham is off in the distance. And if it weren't for Lot, Abram could have said, it's not my problem. <laughs> you know, that's their problem. And in fact, he might even have said, oh boy, the neighborhood's looking up. Uh, because this Sodom was no, was no picnic, morally or any other way. But Abraham goes off, as you see in verses 13 through 16, in hot pursuit. I have to say, one of my favorite teachers talks about how uh, Abram was a great military leader and, and he was even compared to Andrew Jackson. And I have to say this, I don't see a lick of that in the text. That's like saying, I, I am great with uh, interior design. You all know that isn't true. I can't even wear the right color socks, let alone figure out what looks good in the house. I don't think Abraham was a great military man. I think God gave Abraham the victory. It's just that simple. God gave him the victory. And, and, uh, and Melchizedek comes along to be sure that Abraham's got that point firmly in his mind. So here you have the king of Sodom now as, as Abram uh, comes back with all of the captives, all of the loot. And by the way, that would have been a fair bit of spoils. It isn't just Sodom uh, and the other four kings and those peoples and their loot because Keterleomer has been taking all of these other little fiefdoms as he's on his way down. I would say he's loaded. And, and by the way, this is at the end. This is the last of his military conquests so when Abram goes after him and takes all the spoil, it's a bunch of people and a bunch of goods. I'll bet you there's a whole lot more people who have been taken captive than there were uh, re- uh, liberating them, from what I can read, at least of Abraham's 318. It wasn't a big group. So you've got this whole group. Now they're, they're going to reassemble, and the king of Sodom is on his way out. You can just see that. There's going to be a ticker tape parade, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's going to do all these things to tell Abram what a great military man he is. And, and I don't know exactly what the, 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 uh, the sequence of events was, whether the king of Sodom is actually present at the moment. He's on his way, at least. But from nowhere, from virtually nowhere, so far as our text is concerned, here comes this guy, Melchizedek, who, who, who he, you know, he hasn't been out in the battle. He just appears, who is the king of Salem, king of righteousness, and, and he appears on the scene and he has some words for, uh, for Abraham. He is a priest, we know, a priest of God Most High, and he is a king. He comes with bread and wine. Here's a place of departure for some folks, and they could probably spend the rest of the time talking about the bread and the wine and whatever. We don't really know, and the text doesn't, doesn't say to us this is somehow some kind of a communion service that's, that's taking place here. I do find it interesting, if you look for the, for the closest reference to bread and wine, at least that I found, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when Samuel has said to Saul, these things are going to be confirming signs that will indicate that God has chosen you for king. Remember, one of them was, you'll meet this band of people and they'll give you some bread and they'll give you some wine. So make of that what you wish. But the text, and by the way, that may be one of those things 
that in heaven we'll find out there's this whole other message <laughs> that we didn't see related to the bread and wine, but I think we're probably best to leave it alone at this point. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, but he reminds him that this victory has come about through the hand of God. Again, if, if I'm correct in understanding that this is a fairly substantial army that Abraham has taken on, then, then this is an unbelievable victory. And, and it would be easy for one coming back, and especially with a guy like the king of Sodom who's willing to slap you on the back and tell you what a great guy he is. And, and uh, I think he's kind of an arrogant jerk myself because he says to Abraham, you know, just give us our people back and you can keep all the stuff. So who said it was his anymore? I mean, why would he think that the spoils of war that he's lost are his to give away? And, and so I see him as coming and not doing Abraham any service in terms of giving praise to God. And it's Melchizedek who basically rightly aligns Abraham and says, you better keep it straight. This was God's victory, not your victory. And you better give him the glory for what he has done. He gives a, uh, I, I say here, it's the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, I think I want to come back to this, but when you think about it, Abraham is indestructible, is he not? When you think of our last lesson where we were talking about the promises that are made with an oath and that those promises are unchangeable, then what did God promise? He said, in, in, amongst other things in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. Well, where would you put Keter Leomer and his company of friends in, that, in those categories? I'd put him on the curse side. Would you not? And, and so what you... And by the way, I would put Mamre and, and his brothers, I would put them on the blessing side. Man, oh man, they went with Abraham. They came back loaded uh, with good. So it was good to know Abraham. It was bad to fight with Abraham. So it seems to me that you have a confirmation that when God says, this is going to happen, look, you've got to be alive to have a baby, right? You've got to be alive to have a child. He couldn't die. He was indestructible. God, well, well, I'm getting off, and I've got, I'm going to yell more about that a little bit later because that's an important part. But this is the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant. God keeps his word. And he's seeing the first fruits of that. Uh, as he gets the victory over Kedalioma. He gives a tithe to Melchizedek, and then he refuses the king's uh, offer, so, uh, the king of Sodom's offer in terms of the spoils. Again, it seems to me to be a very arrogant offer. It, all the spoils belong to Abraham and his men. And, and when Abraham gives a tithe, he gives a tithe, it's a tenth, not of everything Abraham has in the bank, uh, it, it's a tithe of all of the spoils of war. Now, if Abraham gives a tithe of 10%, does that not suggest to you that it's his to give? I mean, isn't that just implied? Why, why would Abraham pick somebody else's pocket and say, I'm giving this to the Lord? It's his. And, and the thing that struck me is that when Abram refuses, he, by the way, do you notice? Abraham gives an oath. We were in that section where it talks about every man gives an oath and, and when he swears, he swears by somebody higher than himself. God most high is as high as you can go. He swore that he would not take anything 
from the king of Sodom uh, that would make it appear that he had enriched him. I think once it was evident that the king of Sodom was behaving in a way that it looked like these goods, the spoils of war, were his. And remember, that's a lot more than what he hauled off from Sodom. That's all the spoils that came from all of the other military battles as well. That, that w- for him to think that somehow those are his to give is to miss the point entirely. But once it was obvious to Abraham, and it seems to me that it became obvious at the point he swore his oath, he said, not only do I glorify God, I will not take any wealth that somehow deprives God of the honor that he deserves of making me rich. He will not touch that money. And especially once the king of Sodom has indicated his intention, I'll give you this. It's as though I'm doing you a favor. I'm helping you out, Abe. And, and, and Abraham says, I'm not touching that stuff. God has promised to bless me and I don't need blessing in any other way than through his hand, not yours, through his. So he he refuses uh, the king of Sodom's offer and you notice he does not hold his convictions over Mamre and his brothers. He says, you give these guys their share. They, They don't live by my convictions, but I'm not taking any. But the fact that he gave a tithe indicates that Abram believed that it was his to give uh, initially. Okay, that's the incident that takes place in Genesis chapter 14. Now let's look at uh, Psalm 110, and in particular, verse 4. Is it not fascinating that you have this obscure little text in Genesis, nothing much made of it. I mean, it's just Melchizedek comes... He does this, he goes, it's over. Nobody thinks a thing about it. For a thousand years, for a thousand years, nobody raises an eyebrow, nobody picks up on this, and lo and behold, David, in Psalm 110, now picks up in verse 4, in one verse, and he opens the doorway and says, this incident in Genesis 14 was far bigger than we ever imagined. This was a pretty significant thing that's taken place. So you notice, by the way, Psalm 110 is the most, as a text, the most quotations of any Old Testament book or chapter come out of Psalm 110. This is a huge, this is a huge text. And when you think about it, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45, our Lord Jesus makes something out of it. Remember, the opponents are saying, just just who do you think you are claiming to be God? And, and Jesus says to them, well, i got a question for you guys. In, in Psalm 110, uh, uh, David says that his son is his Lord and his son. What do you make of that? In other words, he's claiming that there is deity and humanity, which, of course, is true. He's claiming that the son of David, who Jesus claims to be, is greater than David. Now, that's something that will boggle your brain, but Jesus goes right to this text to to make that point. A psalm of David, and essentially the first three verses are an oracle from God. Now, you may not get that as you look, uh, and I don't know why, I didn't didn't look at all the translations, but where it says in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, that's not the traditional, typical, uh, everyday word for speaking. 
The words that, that is used is the word for an oracle from God. That is, where God has spoken directly. And God has spoken, therefore, to His Son. So this is an oracle. And then when you come to verse 4, you have the oath. So these statements that are being made are statements that are powerful in the light of, of what we've just seen in chapter 6. These are things that are unchangeable. These are, these are uh, promises that are fixed. So he says then uh, in verses 1 through 3, You are God's king. The Lord says, Yahweh says, To my Lord Adonai, so the Father is speaking to the Son, and then the oath that is made, you are a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The assumption behind all of this is Melchizedek is a prototype of Messiah. And I'm not sure how you'd escape coming to that conclusion. But that's a revelation that we would not have had just coming out of Genesis 14. David says that's the way it is. Okay, points of correspondence between these two texts. There are, there are a number of points of correspondence, not all of which uh, David choose, chooses to pick up on, but, but one of them is king and priest. King and priest. Now, what's significant about that is, there, if you think about the separation of church and state, where some people are trying to drive a huge wedge between these two, which never was meant to exist, but... but there was a separation between king and priest. You remember what happened to Saul when Saul got antsy and, and he offered the sacrifice and Samuel said, wait until I come and do it? Saul was not to infringe upon priestly responsibilities. That was a serious offense. Now all of a sudden you've got a king who is a priest. And, and the point is, this is obviously not of the ironic order. This is, not, this is not following the same set of parameters that we have for Aaron and his priesthood. Both are kings and priests. There is, I put an asterisk by these, deity and eternality. There, there needs to be no asterisk beside the Son. The Son is God, and, and the Son is eternal. But when you look at his description of what's taking place here with Melchizedek, he, there, I know there are those. I'm going to skip down to theophany and say, okay, I doubt it. I have friends that really are convinced that this is a theophany. I don't think so because I think one of the correspondences that's being made between Melchizedek and Christ is there is a humanity there, but the difference is Christ is human and divine. If this was a theophany, then it's only God. And the points of correspondence then are really arguments from silence. In other words, when it says no mother and no father, I don't think any of us would read that and say, somehow this guy just came from nowhere, right? No, what it means is, when we read the text, and by the way, when you were a priest, and when you were an Israelite, your uh, genealogical heritage, your roots were really important. Where you were from, Think about those who returned in Nehemiah or Ezra. They returned back to the land. If they could not prove their genealogical link, then they, they did not have the same privileges of people who could. When you were a priest in the Aaronic order, you had better be able to show you have roots back to, uh, to Aaron. So his point here is not that he's fatherless and motherless in the sense that there wasn't ever one of those. His point is the text doesn't tell us so, so far as he appears to us in the text, the guy comes from nowhere. He has no father and mother. There's no account of his death. He just, he just is. 
And he says, that's kind of like Messiah. It's kind of like Messiah. With Melchizedek, he really was a man. He really did have parents. He really did have an origin and a death. But the text doesn't tell us that. So in that sense, there's this similarity. And that's the thing, I think, that the author is trying to, to bring to uh, our attention. The fate of friends and foes. What you see in the Genesis 14 text is the friends of Abraham did well. <laughs> the foes of Abraham did not. And when you look at this text in Psalm 110, if we looked at it more fully, not only with respect to the king aspect, but with respect to the priest aspect in 4 through 7, he reigns victoriously over his enemies. In fact, some people would think this is not a very priestly kind of text to talk in these bloody terms about shattering kings and judging nations and filling the place with corpses and whatever. But priests really did battle. In fact, when you look in Revelation and you see the, 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 the attire of those who do battle in Revelation, they're wearing priestly attire. Priests were not wimps. Remember that, that, that it was the, the priests who had to go out when, when the people were being were having revelry uh, and, and they were going out slaying the people who were falling into that, priests were not just, uh, uh, shall we say, pacifistic uh, religious people. They were aggressive in terms of doing battle. So there are these points of correspondence that, that the author makes between uh, Melchizedek and Messiah. And it, the author of Hebrews is now picking up on that. He's not acting independently, but like he did with Psalm 95, he's saying, there is something here we need to ponder. And as he's going to show the superiority of Christ and his priesthood over Aaron and his, then he goes back uh, as the, the psalmist did, and as we see then and understand from Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek and Messiah in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 10. I'm not sure that I like exactly the breakout of who Melchizedek was, but it's pretty clear the first three verses are a general description and then the application is made in verses 4 through 10. He is the king of Salem. By the way, it is thought by a number of people that Salem is Jerusalem. And if you looked at Psalm 76 too, that's really what it says. So here he is, the king of Salem. And remember, in, in Psalm 110, it says that his throne will extend from Zion, from Jerusalem. So it, it appears that Melchizedek is from Salem, Jerusalem, and that he is a priest of God Most High. He meets Abraham, he blesses him, he pays the tithe to him, and, and then he makes the point of those names. Melchizedek, Melech, is king. Zedek is righteous king of righteousness, and then he says, uh, king of Salem. When you're in the east, you say Salam, and it's sort of related, peace. Uh, and, and so he is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And obviously, we know those attributes uh, relate to our Lord Jesus. No record of uh, his origins or of his death, and like the Son of God, he retains, uh, as, uh, retains the position of priest perpetually. That is, we don't read of Melchizedek's retirement. Now, we know in the Aaronic priesthood, we know there were specific regulations as to how long a man served as priest. When they started, how long they served. Not read there, so the author draws the similarity. 
Here's where he starts pressing his point home in verses 4 through 10. How Melchizedek proves to be superior to Abraham and his descendants, which in particular would be uh, Aaron. Abraham paid him a tithe of the spoils, indicating his greatness. Hey, folks, the lesser pays tithes to the greater. Would we all agree to that? The lesser pays tithes to the greater. And when Abraham, as great as he was, paid tithes to Melchizedek, he's saying Melchizedek is greater than I am. So that's the first indication. Then he goes on to say in, in, in verse 5, the Levitical priests also collect the tithes from their brethren. That, that is, priests collect tithes. And, and they collect them from their brothers who are Abraham's offspring. But Melchizedek is not related to Abraham. Now, remember, Mel, I don't know whether I would want to say Melchizedek's a Gentile, but, but, but what I'm saying is he isn't a Jew in the sense that he's of the offspring of Abraham. Would you agree? He is not. He's not. Abraham doesn't have any offspring, folks, at this stage. He can't be Abraham's offspring. So he's this guy from somewhere that isn't within the system uh, and within what we would think of in, in Judaistic terms. And yet, he receives tithes from Abraham and he blesses Abraham, the man who is the recipient of God's promises. That's a rather incredible thing. Verse 6. Thus, Melchizedek, who blessed, is greater than than Abraham, who is the blessee, if you want to put it in those terms. The blessor is greater than the blessee. Greater blesses lesser. That means Melchizedek is greater. Then in verse 8, he makes this point, mortals are inferior to immortals. Now, again, he's playing off of this thought that Melchizedek has no reference to his origins or his death, and so it's as though he, his priesthood were uh, indefinite in terms of its terms, and so... He who looks immortal, from our perspective at least, uh, is greater than one who is mortal, like, like Aaron or Abraham. And finally, Melchizedek is greater than Aaron who was in Abraham's loins. Now, this is a fascinating argument. And it's the argument that's called federal headship. But the reality of it is that the offspring, Abraham's offspring, were in his loins, so to speak. Please don't press me on that point, but they were there. And, 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 and what it's saying is that because of that, what Abraham did, those who were in his loins did as well. And Aaron was therefore one of Abraham's descendants. Abraham, in what he did, was acting for Aaron. So it was Aaron, in one sense, who was showing the greater uh, the greatness of Melchizedek and, and, and offering tithes to him. So he's saying not only was Abraham not as great as Melchizedek, but Abraham's offspring, specifically Aaron and his priesthood, were inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay, let's talk about some things in conclusion. I'll tiptoe through some of these. What does this contribute to the author's argument? Well, one, it gives historical roots to this whole issue of the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. He's made that reference, but now he's given documentation as to how the priesthood of Jesus is Melchizedekian, as it were. Uh, he's shown the superiority of Christ's priesthood. And then let's talk about principles and lessons and applications from the text. Hermeneutics, how do we handle Scripture? 
I think I would have to say to us, we ought not to try and do it exactly like David did it. He was under divine inspiration. <laughs> He's getting straight revelation. I wouldn't want to see us take texts like we've seen here and all of us feel free to make of them what we wish. But, it, but I think you have to say, when an author by divine inspiration and when the writer to the Hebrews, through David and his insight into the event in Genesis 14 does it, we learn. And I think we can say this much. Scripture has a whole lot more there than most of us realize. Would you not agree with me? Scripture contains a whole lot more than most of us have ever seen. And in that sense, don't think the deeper you dig that you're going to hit bottom sometime and it's the end. It isn't. So there is that encouragement for us as Christians. It doesn't matter how old you get, you're going to read the Scriptures and say, why didn't I see that before? And, and you, don't have to, you don't have to manipulate the text to do it. It's just there. It's our dullness, not the Scriptures that, uh, that cause that. Principle of federal headship, I, I, I want to say that that helps us very much when you come to Romans chapter 5. Because Romans chapter 5 is saying, all of us in, in uh, Adam sinned. All of us in Adam sinned. Well, how does that work? All you've got to say is the same way Aaron offered tithe to, to Melchizedek. It's that way. We were in him. Now, let me give you this caveat. While all of us were participants in that sense, in Adam's sin and therefore of the consequence of the curse that falls on us, Matthew chapter 23 also says to, to, to these uh, uh, religious leaders, because you have imitated the sin of your forefathers, you've also joined them in what they've done. So what I'm trying to say is, in one sense, we are sinners because Adam sinned. In another sense, I'm saying, we're sinners because we sin just like Adam sinned. And, and so don't, don't think we're just, you know, it's all Adam's fault. But the point there is, that you, if you, if whatever happens in Adam comes to us, whatever happens in Christ comes to all of those who are in Christ. So we are in Christ, and all of the blessings and everything that is in Him is ours because of being in Him. Okay, the principle of federal headship. That's worth some further thought. How did man, uh, Melchizedek manifest his priesthood? Well, he manifested his priesthood by helping Abraham see things straight by making sure that Abraham understood it was God who had given the victory. It was God that deserved the glory. Now, some things we can learn from Abraham. One, we are, we are we designed, when God blessed us, to be a blessing to others. God blesses us to bless others. And I think you could say, old Mamre and his brothers got together and said, whoa, teaming up with old Abraham wasn't a bad idea, Right? It was a blessing. Now, you could sure say, with respect to Lot, it was a blessing to him that God had made a promise. And even for the moment, even for the moment, it was a blessing to the king of Sodom and all his troops if they had paid attention. We, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. When God makes a covenant promise, he allows nothing to prevent it. This, if I were going to put a star by one, I'd put it right here. When God makes his promise firm, nothing will keep that promise from happening. Now think about Abraham. His sin flees off uh, in chapter 12. He, he goes back down to Egypt. It goes down to Egypt. 
He passes his wife off as his sister, literally putting her in bed with Pharaoh. And then, years later, does the same thing with Abimelech in chapter 20. You've got to say, God made a promise to Abraham. And do you notice, I don't want to be too graphic about this, do you notice that God shut down biologically every womb in the nation? Because he wanted to guarantee that Sarah was going to have a baby by Abraham. God will not let our sin keep us from what he has committed to do. I don't know how you avoid that with Abraham or anybody else. Abraham's inability did not prevent God from doing it. Uh, when you think about his age, Abraham and Sarah are over the hill. God makes the promise at 75. He fulfills it at 100. Abraham's saying, it's over. And if he isn't, Sarah is. It's over. It isn't going to happen. Well, it did. Human inability does not keep God from fulfilling his promise to his people. And Abraham's enemies do not prevent God from fulfilling his promise. That's why Abraham was indestructible. When he went to war against Keterleomer, it didn't matter what the odds were. It didn't matter whether they were a thousand to one. We know with Gideon it was 300 versus a whole bunch. It didn't matter what the odds were because God had promised to bring about things through Abraham and he couldn't die and have God do that. God does not let the opponent keep him from fulfilling his promises. Give the glory to God, and I say in finances. It, 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 I think we have to be careful about making, as some do, this a tithing text, because he's talking about the spoils of war that have been, that have been gathered here, not all of, uh, of Abram's uh, goods. But I think what you have to say is that Abram's giving was a sign of the greatness of God and his trust in him. When you look in Hebrews chapter 13, where God says, I will never leave you or forsake you, it's saying in that context, don't get all wrought up about money. Folks, a lot of people are thinking about money these days. <laughs> no wonder why. But I've got to tell you, God is going to be faithful. And if we believe God is who he is, one of the ways we demonstrate that is by giving a portion of the blessings that have come clearly from his hand back to God. Separation. Abraham's an example of, of the fact that he will not form alliances with the king of Sodom. And rightly so. Abraham, so far as I'm aware, he doesn't know what's coming up for Sodom and Gomorrah. We do. But Abraham was right. There was a character you had no business teaming up with. And unfortunately, Lot hasn't learned that lesson yet. Now, somehow, Mamre and his brothers, that was okay. But not this guy, king of Sodom. Separation. Apply what you've learned to other areas of your life. I just want to remind you of, of, Hebrews, uh, of, of uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. This whole affair ends, remember? And, and then in chapter 14, Melchizedek goes away and so on. And then in Genesis 15, God says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. You know, I don't know what happened when Abraham went home. <laughs> I don't know whether he told Sarah about all the spoils and that he left them there in Sodom. And maybe Mrs. Abraham said, Are you crazy? Do you know that's our retirement? 
Do, do you know that would have put our kids through a Sodom University? Uh, I mean, you know, it, it, looked, it looked crazy, did it not? Look at, look at the security that was there and Abraham gave it up. And, and it seems to me that at some point, Abraham in a quiet moment says to himself, was I nuts or what? And God says to him, Abraham, I got this list. And he reaffirms, just like he did at the end of chapter 13, this property's going to be yours. He reaffirms, I'm your reward, Abraham. I'm going to take care of you. And, and we need to remember that. Even after great victories, sometimes we start stumbling over little things and wondering whether God's going to take care of us. One of those, I would say, is money. So Melchizedek is a picture of Christ to come. He is greater than Abraham. His priesthood is greater than Abraham's. And that's the foundation on which the author is going to build as we proceed in, in Hebrews chapter 7. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the way in which, through your Spirit, you have woven together these things. You have tied together events a thousand years apart. You have shown us what these things mean to us, and you are applying those to our lives even today. Help us to be like Abraham. Help us to trust you. Help us to be a blessing to others. Help us to give you the glory. If there's anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, I pray that they would acknowledge their sin and that they would trust in the work which Jesus has done as our high priest to bear the burden of our sins so that we may be forgiven and saved eternally. In Jesus' name. Amen.